Take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, and this morning we come to the passage of all passages in this great epistle. In fact, we've already been here quite often because you can't go really anywhere in the book of Romans without going back to this text time and time again. It's, it's, all, it's, it's as if all roads lead to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And so let me read this for us as I begin, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, what a, an amazing section of your word. And while people have studied this for years, Lord, we have yet to plumb the depths of the meaning that is here, the richness, Lord, this description of justification by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ. Father, if we don't understand this passage, we don't understand the gospel. And we can't and won't be motivated to share it with others. And we can't even be saved ourselves unless we understand what this text teaches. And so I pray that you would grant us grace by your spirit, Lord. Illuminate us now to understand what your spirit meant when he inspired Paul to write these verses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, at about this time, I was standing in Grand Central Station in New York City. I'm sure a number of you, if not many of you, have been there yourselves, this world-famous landmark at 42nd Street and Park Avenue in Midtown Manhattan, with its stunning architecture, its signature four-faced opal clock above the information booth in the center of that Uh, main concourse, uh, the dome ceiling that is etched with constellations. Uh, It's one of the most visited tourist attractions in the world. But it's it's much more than just a a popular destination for sightseers. Uh, As you may know, Grand Central Station serves as the transportation hub of the biggest and busiest city in the United States. They say some 750,000 people pass through its halls and tunnels daily. That's a lot of people. And through uh, its ongoing restoration and development, 
it has become really the heart of this sprawling urban campus of shops and restaurants and, and, and office towers and hotels and apartments that are built above and around this complex maze of tracks and tunnels. And it's really a fascinating place to, to go uh, experience and to explore. And uh, I say all that because this morning we have the opportunity to experience and explore a a fascinating landmark text of Scripture, which could be viewed as the grand central station, not just of the book of Romans, but of the entire Bible, because all the theological tracks or, or themes, if you will, in Scripture lead to this passage or, or leave from this passage. In fact, it was Martin Luther, who we know got saved studying the book of Romans, he said this about this particular passage. He said, Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. In other words, it's Grand Central Station. And over the centuries, pastors and Bible teachers and commentators have all stressed the significance of this passage. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher of old. He said, it's a foolish thing to say, perhaps, but if I were asked which, in my opinion, is the most important and crucial passage in the whole scripture, I would have to say Romans 3, 21 through 31. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, I'm convinced after these many years of Bible study that these verses are the most important in the Bible. And then Leon Morris said this, it may possibly be, this particular section, he said it may possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written, period. Not just in the Bible, but in all of human time. Well, whether or not it's True, there's no question that Romans 3, 21 through 26 is one of the most important passages in Scripture. Because here we not only have the heart of the book of Romans, we have the very heart of the gospel itself. And in these six verses, Paul weaved together many of the, the crucial terms and themes related to the doctrine of salvation. When we come upon key words and, and concepts which are, are critical in order to have an accurate understanding of how a person is saved. Words like justify, grace, faith, redemption, propitiation. I mean, these are top 10 words for soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. Someone uh, likened this passage to doctrinal caviar because of its richness, or maybe you could say it's not just a double espresso, it's a triple espresso or a quad espresso. Is that even possible? I'm not a coffee drinker, but I'm sure you guys that drink espresso, espresso, no, you can just go for it and ask them for as much as you want. Well, this is the maximum amount you could possibly handle. Why? Because no other passage in the Bible more clearly summarizes in a concentrated form, the, the essential reformation truth of, of justification by faith alone. K. 
Calvin, John Calvin said this, there's not probably in the whole Bible a passage which sets forth more profoundly the righteousness of God in Christ. And as we read through this, it's obvious that the theme is righteousness. It's, that word is mentioned four times, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25 This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed. And again, verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. And so here Paul provided an answer to that age-old question which has been asked by people from the dawn of time. Uh, Most people agree, Bible scholars agree, that Job was the first book written uh, long before uh, the Torah, the books of Moses, it was the, really the first book of the Bible, if you will. And, and this is what Job asked in Job 9.2, how can a man be in the right before God? And I believe it was one of his uh, friends who was accusing him, uh, Bildad, he said this, how then can a man be just with God? It's the question that's been, been being asked since the beginning of time. If God is righteous and we are unrighteous, then how can we ever be right with Him? Or asked another way, how can sinful creatures ever have a relationship with a sinless Creator? Well, religion has made an attempt to answer this question with a myriad of works-based Systems based on human effort, human accomplishment. John MacArthur states in his commentary on this passage, he said, Christianity is distinct from every other religion. As far as the way of salvation is concerned, there are only two religions the world has ever known or ever will know. The religion of divine accomplishment, which is biblical Christianity. Hope you got that, right? And the religion, the other one, is the religion of human achievement, which includes all other kinds of religion. I don't know if you ever use that line as you're sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of salvation with someone, an unbeliever, and say, hey, guess what? There's basically, you know, all the religions of the world, you can put them all in one category, and and it's, it's essentially what man has to do to be in a right relationship with God, and then there's Christianity, which simply is what God did so that we could be right with God. Be totally different. One is man-centered, one is God-centered. And it really sets Christianity apart. Don't let an unbeliever put Christianity, uh, just lump it together with, with Judaism and, and, and Mormonism and, and, and Islam and, and all the other religions of the world. No, it's completely different, particularly based on who is the one who makes a person right with God. Is it us or is it God? It's God. And so... In this passage, Paul explained the essence of biblical Christianity, namely that that, that since there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God, God has to devise a way to make us right with Him. And as we've been stating here in, in past weeks, God graciously grants His righteousness as a gift to sinful people who admit they're not good enough and could never be good enough for God to accept them, and so they stop trying to earn God's favor and embrace by faith the work 
that his son Jesus did for them by living and dying on their behalf. And as a result, they are declared right or righteous before God. Maybe to say it more simply, God justifies sinners who abandon their own good works and solely trust in the finished work of his son Jesus to make them right with him. So bottom line, the solution to man's sin is God's son. That's God's solution to our sin. It's his son. And that's what this passage is all about. And so how I'd like us to look at it this morning is just to to see how Paul explains six, six aspects of the righteousness that God imparts to those who believe in his son Jesus Christ. Six aspects of the righteousness that God imparts to those who believe in his son Jesus Christ. Now before we look at these six aspects of God's righteousness, I want to just say a couple things. Number one, um, you may look at this text and, 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 and immediately be intimidated. Um, I know when I first stepped into Grand Central Station, I was very intimidated because I didn't understand necessarily how it all worked and I didn't know my way around. And thankfully, our son Jacob has my wife's, um, has Kelly's sense of direction. And uh, he was kind of, you know, able to navigate for us pretty quickly. And once I kind of got the hang of it, I was like, hey, let's go to Grand Central Station. I know how to go now. I know where to go and how it works. And, you know, but, but until I kind of got comfortable, I was very intimidated. In fact, I didn't even want to go there. But I had to. I was a chaperone. It was my job to keep these kids alive and, you know, bring them back home alive from New York City. So, but, but I was intimidated by it. But I left feeling a lot more comfortable with it. And hopefully that will be the case this morning. You might, uh, hopefully you'll leave here a lot more comfortable with what is going on in these verses. Uh, let me also say this, that the aim of this passage is explanation, not exhortation. Okay, so much of what we hear from the Word of God is exhortation, and we're being commanded or challenged, right, to do certain things or be certain things. Well, this is simply explanation. It's, Paul simply wants to, us to understand our great salvation and to respond with wonder and adoration and, and gratitude to God for coming up with a, 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 such a wise solution to our sin problem. And so I hope that we will all leave here this morning just, just simply marveling at and, and, and rejoicing in God and the salvation that he's provided us. In other words, you're not going to leave here with a to-do list. Oh, I got to do that. I got to try hard. I gotta, uh, no, no. This is just to walk out of here reveling in your salvation. And so let's look at these six aspects of the righteousness that God imparts to those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. First of all, God's righteousness is attested to in the Bible. God's righteousness is attested to in the Bible, verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That little beginning phrase there, but now, uh, signifies a, a turning point in the letter, it marks 
the transition from Paul's sobering and depressing portrait of man's sinfulness and unrighteousness in the opening three chapters now to this liberating and exciting celebration of the salvation that's made available to us through Christ. And after studying through chapters 1 through 3, and we get to chapter 3, verse 21, and it says, but now we should all let out a collective sigh. Like, a, like a, a ray of sun piercing through the dark storm clouds of God's wrath against our sin. This is, this is, this is relief. And if you have your little outline there that I've been referring back to from time to time, a roadmap for Romans, we see that here is a transition from the first main section of the book of Romans, which we titled Condemnation, where Paul talks about the lack of righteousness. Now we're going to talk about justification, the gift of righteousness. So just to keep us uh, looking at the, you know, don't, don't lose sight of the forest for all the trees here, right? But in, in chapters 1 through 3, we, we know how Paul acted like a, a prosecuting attorney, and he was presenting God's case against the human race. And he put forth this litany of charges which all provide this undeniable evidence that the entire human race is completely corrupted by sin and condemned by God. We are helplessly dominated by sin and hopelessly doomed to hell. And there's nothing we can do about it. We are rotten to the core and that's just the way it is. And we can't change ourselves. And if left to ourselves, we'll end up paying the consequences of our sin by spending eternity in hell. That's the bad news. But now, Paul shared the good news that even though all men are sinners, all sinners can be saved. Notice he says, but now apart from the law, apart from the law, remember verses 19 and 20, we just looked at those a couple weeks ago. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, there's a connection there. Paul just got done explaining how the purpose of the law was to make us defenseless before God and dependent on, on his son. As I, as I said it this way, I said that, that uh, the purpose of the law is to shut us up by showing us our sin in order to shove us into the arms of Jesus. So God didn't give us his law to save us, but to show us that we needed someone else to save us. And that someone obviously is Jesus. And the law of Moses, I think that's what he's referring to now, apart from the law, the law of Moses, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, simply describe God's righteous standards and how far we fall short of them, which points us to the promised Messiah who would fulfill God's righteous standards for us in our place, on our behalf. And so he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested and uh, that should, that little phrase, the, the righteousness of God has been manifested, should ring a bell. Uh, go back to chapter 1, verse 17, because this is where Paul launched into this discussion of the righteousness of God. 
He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And really, you could go straight from chapter 1, verse 17 and splice it right in here to chapter 3, verse 21, and it would flow perfectly. Because this is, I think, what, what's in verses 21 through 31 is what Paul was getting to. This is what he wanted to talk about. But before he could talk about how God provided his righteousness for us in Christ, he had to prove to us or show us that we lacked righteousness. And that's what he spent time doing there um, in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Now, in, in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul used the present tense there. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed which is an indication that every time the gospel is preached, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we talked about the righteousness of God really has three aspects. It's who God is, an attribute, his righteousness, he's righteous. Uh, It's an activity uh, that he, he accomplishes righteousness through his son Jesus, who comes to earth and does all the things that we couldn't do and then dies on the cross uh, that's his work of righteousness. And then it, it's an award, if you will. It's, a, it's something that he gives us. It's a gift. And so we have to keep those three aspects of this term righteousness in our minds as we go about this. But because here in chapter 3, verse 21, he uses what's called the perfect tense, which indicates an action that occurred in the past with results continuing in the present. So he says the righteousness of God has been manifested, which I think is a clear reference to the new era of salvation that dawned at the coming of Christ. In other words, God's method of bringing sinful men back into a right relationship with himself was made known when Christ came to earth and lived and died in our place. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 1, Verse 9, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. In other words, this was planned before time began, this, this, this d- grand design of salvation, making unrighteous men righteous, but now it's revealed, this plan is put out in the open, if you will, will, at the coming of Christ. And we know that the coming of Christ was not a surprise. It was foretold. It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Notice he says that the righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And that expression, law and the prophets, was the way the Jews referred to the Old Testament. Um, And so what Paul is saying here is that that God making people right with him through faith in the sacrifice of a substitute was predicted, was anticipated throughout the Old Testament. And Paul, we know, quotes a lot of the Old Testament in the book of Romans. Um, And in fact, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is his leading Old Testament quote in chapter 1 verse 17, but the righteous man shall live by what? By faith. So, again, we'll get into this more probably next time, uh, or at least when we get into chapter 4, 
but there is only one way to be saved. Okay, you're like, yeah, no duh. What are you talking about? Well, sometimes when you think about how people were saved in the Old Testament and how people are saved in the New Testament era, it might seem different. It might appear different. But we need to understand there's only one way to be saved, and that is by faith in the sacrificial, substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what about Old Testament saints? They didn't, they didn't know about Christ, or they didn't know what he was going comp- what, what what, what to accomplish on the cross. Well, whenever an Old Testament saint obeyed the commands of God, fulfilled the law, if you will, and carried out the sacrifices of the sacrificial system, right? They were demonstrating faith in the promises of God and ultimately in the coming of Christ, the Messiah, who would fulfill those promises. And so even though they could have never anticipated Calvary, the cross, and what happened there, God did. God knew what was going to happen, and so he credited their faith to the future work of Christ. In other words, they got saved on credit. Sacrificing animals didn't save them. Their sins, just like ours, were atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, essentially, they looked ahead in faith to not exactly sure what they were looking at, right? We look back in faith. The point is, the object of our faith is the same. It's the work of Christ on the cross. And again, in the following chapter here, chapter 4, we're going to see how Paul explained how two of the most well-known Old Testament saints, Abraham, who lived under the law, and David, who was, lived during the time of the prophets, how they were both saved by faith, not by works, not by keeping the law. And so the first principle here, the first aspect of righteousness here is that God's righteousness is attested to in the Bible. Secondly, God's righteousness is acquired by faith. God's righteousness is acquired by faith. Notice in verse 22, he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And this is the first of eight mentions of the word faith in this passage Verse 22, verse 25, verse 26, uh, and then we're going to see next week, Lord willing, verse 27, verse 28, verse 30, verse 31, faith, 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 faith. He's just uh, like a broken record here, and and we know this is a pervasive theme in all of Paul's letters, not just the letter uh, to the Romans here, Um, Galatians 2.16, talking about knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. And of course, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through what? Faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And don't even think for a second that faith is our part that we have to do in salvation. No, even that is a gift from the Lord. That is something that he grants us along with repentance. Repentance is a gift as well. It's not a work that we have to accomplish. 
Um, Paul's own testimony, again, Philippians 3.9. He rejected everything that he had worked for, his entire uh, upbringing in Judaism. Why? So that he would be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so he says back here in chapter 3, verse 22 of Romans, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. In other words, what, was, what God accomplished in Christ applies only to those who believe in Jesus. Remember his uh, uh, great statement, maybe the theme verse of Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Is that what it says? No, to everyone who, what? Believes. There's a condition there. The gospel doesn't apply to those that don't believe. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In that same context of John 3, Jesus said this. This is John 3, 36. But he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So that helps us define what does this believe mean? Is it, is it just acknowledging that he existed? You ask most people, hey, do you believe in Jesus? They're like, yeah, of course. He was an actual human being. He's written up in history books. Well, is that enough to save you? Um, accepting some facts about him, what he did on the cross and what he did at the resurrection, having some emotional experience with him? No, it means obeying him. That you believe to the point that you obey. It's the demons, right? The demons had faith. James 2.19, the demons believe and they what? Shudder. There was no one more orthodox than, than demons. I mean, you just look at the, 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 the people that uh, Jesus confronted who were possessed by demons and the demons started talking to Jesus and they knew exactly who he was. And they were scared of him. But they wouldn't submit to him. And that's the difference. True saving faith is, is, is an act of submission to the lordship of Christ. So Paul assumes here that trusting Jesus would result in obeying Jesus. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about how he had received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. He uses that same phrase in chapter 16, verse 26. So it wasn't just faith, it was obedient faith. Faith that results in obedience, a life of obedience. And as the reformer said it, You've heard me say this countless times. A person is saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone, right? And so we need to understand that, that God's righteousness, God's righteousness is acquired by faith. It's acquired by faith. Thirdly, God's righteousness is afforded to everyone or offered to everyone. Notice he says, Back in chapter 3, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. 
God's offer of salvation or invitation to salvation is open to all, the, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile. God doesn't discriminate based on race, gender, age, fill in the blank. Anyone can experience his righteousness in Christ. Why? Well, no one's good enough to be saved, but at the same time, no one's bad enough to not be saved. The only criteria to be saved is you need to be a sinner, and that covers all of us, right? That applies to all of us. It's true of all of us. He says, verse 23, for, why is there no distinction? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we all need a Savior. We all need this righteousness from outside of ourselves because we lack our own righteousness. And again, this is a familiar verse. I'm sure many of you have this memorized, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You heard it thousands of times. I think it's a, a simple summary of everything that Paul just got done saying and Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, everything he said about sin, he just summarizes it here in this simple statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word sin literally means to miss the mark. The idea is, uh, you know, shooting for a target with an arrow and, and you just, it, just, it just falls short. You, you don't make it. And I think by using the present tense here, Paul emphasized that we continually come up short of God's standard. It's not like we just failed. No, we continually fail every day. You say fail at what? Well, we fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, I think what's implied there is that God made us in his image and intended us to bring him glory by reflecting him in the world. And yet, because of our sin, God's image is marred, it's, it's distorted, it's defaced, and so God's glory uh, is defamed through us. And that's why Jesus came. Christ was sinless, and he perfectly reflected God. I mean, he showed us what God is like. That's why God created us, to show the rest of the world what he's like, and we don't do a very good job of that. Now, the good news is that Someday, God's glory will be restored in us. If you're a believer, it's already, that process has already begun. It's what we call sanctification, right? Where we are conformed to his image, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so we are sitting here this morning, if you're a believer, and we are being conformed to the image of Christ, and that glory is being slowly restored until the day when we get to heaven and it will be perfectly restored, will be glorified, and will be a perfect reflection of God, the way he originally created us to be. So God's righteousness is afforded to everyone. Number four, uh, the fourth aspect here is God's righteousness is attributed to grace. God's righteousness is attributed to grace. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. Now we need to start with that word justified, being justified. This is a, 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 a you know, thousand dollar word, if you will. The verb justify and the noun righteousness come from the same Greek root word, 
they're like two sides of the same coin. So, in other words, he's saying um, being made righteous, you could say that, being justified. It's, it's another way of saying be made righteous or being made right with God. He was being justified as a gift by his grace. Let me give you a definition of justification. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the sinner righteous on the basis of his faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and at the same time credits Christ's righteousness to his account. Now that sounds more like an accounting image, but this whole idea of justification is really a forensic term or a legal, legal language that was used in the courtroom to describe a criminal who was acquitted of his guilt and, and no longer condemned. He was released from punishment. And so when it says we're justified, we're made right with the Lord, um, God's condemnation is no longer on us. We are declared righteous, but listen carefully, we are not made righteous. We are declared righteous, not made righteous. Why? Because there's no change in our character in that act or event of salvation, regeneration, if you will, that happens afterwards in what we call what? We already talked about sanctification, right? Which is a process whereby God makes us righteous, makes us more like Christ. So this is simply a declaration. It's not so much what we are as much as how God sees us at the moment of our salvation. And notice it says it's a gift. We're justified as a gift. In some of your translations, it might say freely. You're justified freely by his grace. Literally, the, 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 the word there means without a cause or without a payment. This, this phrase is used in John 15, 25, when Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. So in other words, you're justified without a cause. Nothing you did without payment, nothing you earned or you purchased. It was the free grace of God, which we know grace as God's unearned and undeserved kindness and favor to helpless and hopeless sinners. You may have heard it described as God giving us what we don't deserve. That's grace. God giving us what we don't deserve. And again, this is just a great reminder. Salvation cannot be earned. It can't be achieved. It can't be purchased. It's not a wage. It's not a reward. It's a gift. And what's the only way you can receive a gift? And it still be a gift. Oh, thank you. Hey, let, me, let me pay you for that. Well, it's no longer a gift. Oh, well, let me go work outside for a bit so, so I feel worthy to get. No, then it's not a gift. And so it's, it's purely a gift. Salvation is a free gift of God. In fact, Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But let's not forget, while salvation may be free for us, it cost God his one and only son. 
And so let's not slip off into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, where we take lightly the cost of our salvation, the cost not that we must pay, but the cost that Christ paid for us. And that should motivate us to to follow him at all costs ourselves. And so salvation or justification or righteousness is attributed to us by grace, or or I should say attributed to grace, or uh, that's how it comes to us, um, or what I should say maybe motivates God to justify us is his grace. Number five, God's righteousness is accomplished in Christ. God's righteousness is accomplished in Christ. And this is where we get into the, what I would say the chunky section. Uh, if you thought it was already you know, deep, it's going to get even deeper now. Um, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption is an important word. It was used in the marketplace to describe the price that a slave would pay to be freed or released from his master, or it was a word used uh, as a ransom that was paid to free a prisoner from their captives. The Jews who translated the Old Testament into Greek, the, what's, what's referred to as a Septuagint, used words from the same Greek root here to describe how the Israelites were released from slavery to Egypt. And so what is this price that was paid, this ransom that was given? Well, it was the life of God's own son that he paid to deliver us from slavery to sin. And again, this is a very important word that comes up often, pops up often in Paul's writings, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, Um, Colossians chapter 1 verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 and 19, talking about how we've been redeemed not by um, worldly things. Verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life, what? As a ransom for many. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Notice what else he says here. Not only was Christ our redemption, he was also our propitiation, whom God displayed, verse 25, publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Here it is again through faith. Some translators don't like the word propitiation because it means to placate or to pacify or appease or satisfy someone's wrath. And so it sounds, uh, it smacks too much of the Greek uh, gods who were um, 
selfish and unpredictable and out of control. And, um, and the Greeks would, would, would have to sacrifice things to, to, and, and build memorials to, to appease or placate the wrath of their gods, their pantheon. And so they put the word, they insert the word expiation. Hopefully uh, you don't have that in your Bible. That's an inferior translation, expiation. Because all that expiation means is just simply that God takes away our sin through Christ, which is true. That, that is true. God does take away our sin. But there's much more going on here, I believe, in Paul's mind and, and, and should be translated with this word propitiation. Because what is the context of this passage? What has he just got done talking about in the first three chapters? That we are under the, what? Wrath of God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 2, verse 5. You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Chapter 2, verse 8. Those who are selfish and obey unrighteousness, they will receive wrath and indignation. Chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? So what does this word propitiation really mean? It simply means that God, God's wrath was satisfied. Another, I guess a synonym of propitiation would be satisfaction. That God was satisfied by the death of his son on the cross. We have a number of other places in scripture that use this word propitiation. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. How about 1 John chapter 2 verse 2, he himself, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. John, 1 John 4 10 in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then just one verse from the Old Testament, probably the, the clearest passage in the whole Old Testament about the substitutionary atonement of Christ is, of course, Isaiah 53. But listen to verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, talking about this, the, 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 how Christ was crushed by the son was crushed by the father as a result of the anguish of his soul he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge the righteous one my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities what a great description of this idea of propitiation john stott who i seem to find a quote from every week as i use his commentary it's such a rich uh, help for me. But he said this. He said, according to Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Now listen to what he says here. Thus, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Don't think about that too long. It'll hurt your head, right? God himself gave himself 
to save us from himself. There's a great mystery there. There's great irony there. And so how did he do it? Well, it was through the blood of Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through his son, Jesus Christ. Lastly, number six, God's righteousness is absolved by the cross. God's righteousness is absolved or vindicated by the cross. Notice what he says in verse 25, and this is where it gets fascinating to me. This, all this, was to demonstrate his righteousness. That's the the characteristic of God, the attribute of God, that's the aspect of righteousness, I think, that Paul's thinking of there. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You say, what's going on there? Well, I think that God knew that some might call his justice into question. Why? Because in his forbearance, he passed over the sins of those in the Old Testament. And really, all those who lived before Christ came. I don't think Paul was talking about all the sins that you committed before you came to Christ. This is all the sins committed by everyone before Christ came and died on the cross. Paul said it in Acts 14, 16 this way. He said, in the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Acts 17, 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. In other words, he was being gracious and he was giving time for people to repent before the coming of Christ, but now that Christ is here, time's up, it's time to repent. But it could appear in someone's mind that God let them get away with sin. This seems unfair. But we need to understand the charges weren't canceled, the punishment was simply delayed until the cross. And he says here, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time. In other words, God showed off, or the cross showed off God's attribute of righteousness that required sin to be punished. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I I think this is a fitting summary of this this marvelous passage that that he accomplished both things. He, He was not only the justifier of the unjust, but he remained just in the whole process. And if you think about it, God would appear to have been in a rock and a hard place. When it came to saving us, 
I mean, how could he remain true to himself? Because his holiness, his justice, his wrath demanded that he punish our sin. And the punishment for sin is what? Death. But at the same time, his love, his grace, his mercy desired to forgive man's sin and grant us eternal life. And so it appears that there's a stalemate in the person of God, in the character of God. His attributes are are at war with one another, as it were. There was this divine dilemma were it not for the wisdom of God that came up with a solution to this divine dilemma. He substituted himself in the person of Jesus and bore the full weight of his own wrath against our sin. And so since Jesus was punished for man's sin, it is fair now for God to forgive all those who have faith in Jesus. He didn't didn't overlook anybody's sin. There's only two ways. All of us are going to experience punishment for our sin. The question is, are we going to experience it ourselves or will Jesus experience it for us? Our sin will be punished, either by us or through Christ. So Paul answered the question, how unrighteous sinners can be made right with God? But he also answered, I think, what might even be a more important question, and that is how can God declare unrighteous people righteous without compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? That's really the crux of this passage. And simply put, how can God justify sinners and still be just? Answer, Jesus, the cross. And so this passage is really not so much about us and our salvation. This is about God and his reputation. You see that? Because the question is, how can God do something that that he commanded us not to do and that that he said he couldn't do? Exodus 23, 7, God says, I will not acquit the guilty. I will not justify the wicked. Well, that's what you're doing. He even commanded his people in Deuteronomy 25, 1, if there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case and they, they need to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. That's what God presented in the law. In Proverbs verse. Chapter 17, verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both alike are an abomination to the Lord. God hates it when guilty people are not condemned. I read this quote a couple weeks ago in in an abbreviated form. I want to read the entire quote from John Piper from his book, Desiring God. And he he said that so well that that somebody's going to pay for your sin. Again, either you or Jesus, your choice. 
He said this, the good news is that God himself has decreed a way to satisfy the demands of his justice without condemning the whole human race. Hell is one way to settle accounts with sinners and uphold his justice. But there is another way. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. And what is this wisdom? The death of the Son of God for sinners. The death of Christ is the wisdom of God by which the love of God saves sinners from the wrath of God and all the while upholds and demonstrates the righteousness of God. Love and hate, wrath and mercy, mingled together at the cross. And while the psalmist may not have anticipated the cross, could not have anticipated the cross, in Psalm 85.10, he says, loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And that's what you see at the cross. You see God's wrath and God's mercy kissing one another. Coming together so that we could be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for solving not just our dilemma, but also your dilemma, not that there was ever a dilemma, because you're never put in a corner, you're never in a situation you don't know what to do, because you have perfect wisdom, but what a plan, what a design, what a, what a solution to our sin. We would have never seen this coming for all eternity if you hadn't clearly laid it out for us in your word. And so, Lord, we have nothing else to do but just to sit back and wonder and to have our heart just filled with love and gratitude to you and your son, Jesus, for what you are willing to do to spare us from your wrath. And so, Lord, I pray that we would leave here just remembering these great truths. And so the next time we're tempted that we would think, how could we sin against such great love? And more motivated to tell other people that there's a solution for their problem of sin. And that's Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. So Lord, motivate us now to be all that you want us to be. Thank you for the truth that we've heard. I pray that you would apply it to our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.